Welcome to First Baptist Church, Fisherville. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, church, whether you're here in the building with us today or joining us by way of the internet, we want to come together as God's people. We want to humble ourselves and press pause in what is arguably busy times and um, hectic times and times that none of us really expected. Yet this wonderfully predictive and predictable Sunday week in and week out where we can gather together and remind ourselves of the gospel is one of the tremendous graces God has given to us as his people. So let's hear this word from our brother Paul excuse me, in Ephesians where he says in chapter 4, I therefore prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, <clears throat> one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. <clears throat> Sorry, it's a hair and dust, I'm cold. Who is over all and through all and in all. So church, let's lift our song of praise to the God of all things, the King of all creation, the one who knows all things and who is sovereign, meticulously so, over all things. The one who has redeemed us is also the one who invites us into his presence this morning as his people collectively to come and to sing and to remind ourselves once again of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So let's stand, let's lift our voices, and let's sing to him today.
lifted up, sing, you are the Lord. Father, the Apostle Paul, writing his God-breathed-out text, tells your church that Christ has been raised from the grave and has been seated at your right hand, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And he has become the head of the church, his body. In his fullness, his very covenantal presence fills the church as a foretaste of what will one day be a cosmic reality. So Lord, as we have sung that song, the verbs matter. It's not that he will one day be exalted, though that is true. He is exalted. He has been raised from the grave, having accomplished atonement for his people, having crushed the serpent's head, taking away our guilt and the power of his dominion. And he has been ascended and enthroned to your right hand where he rules and he reigns in spite of what we may see on the news. In spite of what we may hear by counter-revolutionary movements that are atheistic to their core and antichrist in their motivations, our Christ is exalted. And it's the only way to make sense of this gathering and similar gatherings all over the world this morning. That we would gather and celebrate when our eyes would tell us there's nothing to celebrate. But we have everything to celebrate because we know that Christ's finished work His enthronement is the ground of our sure hope. 
It has not only secured our past and our present, it secures our future. And for that we celebrate this morning. That is the truth, that is the reality that replaces our anxieties, our discouragements, our fears. The sure hope of our exalted Christ. And we have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. That is our position. That is our identity. We pray today, Lord, as we worship you in your Son and by your Spirit, we pray that your Spirit would illumine us to these glories. We pray that, as the proverb says, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Lord, we recognize that light is a person, the exalted Christ, our King. And we pray today our faith, hope, and love would be nourished and strengthened as we ponder that reality. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Amen. Church, this next song is, is a more modern hymn whose truths obviously will outlast all of us. Uh, since they are eternal. So as we sing words like, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. I want to sing this song familiar to all of us. Sing it afresh perhaps this morning. Sing it as a confession of truth. Uh, quite often we need to just, we need to speak the truth and remind ourselves of the gospel and what God has done in Christ and what he's doing now, even in a very, very broken world, what he's doing now in his plan of redemption. But songs like this help us to, to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ, not merely to make salvation and atonement possible, but to fully secure it for all who will believe. So let's stand. Let's confess this together. The Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man, behold the man upon the cross, upon his shore. Yeah. 
Father, we come to you and we lift up the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other place to go. There is no other method or source of salvation. There is no other place where a redemption and atonement can be found but at the cross of our Savior. Lord, I pray that as we hear this message again and again, that we would, you would give us ears that hear it afresh to think through the perfect life lived for us, perfectly keeping the law, and that righteousness being imputed to us who did not and do not deserve such grace and mercy. As we think of the agonies of our Savior bearing the sins of his people on the cross, I pray that we would hear afresh today the words, Father, forgive them, and then it is finished. So cause us by your spirit in us to celebrate and worship anew the risen Savior for all he has done, but more than that, simply for who you are. So as your word is preached this morning, the high point of all Christian worship when your word is spoken and preached. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see afresh, ears to hear afresh, break up any fallow ground, carve away any calluses in our hearts and in our souls, that you may find hearts, minds, lives, families who desperately need and cling to and ask for your means of grace this morning. Speak now, for your people are listening. In Christ's name alone we pray. Amen. Pastor. Thanks, Barry. Worship team, good morning to you. Hope everyone is doing well. What a gift. And it's in the difficult times, like we see in our culture, that I think that our appreciation for corporate worship is all the sweeter. And so what a gift this is to be able to gather with our church family, our brothers and sisters, our like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are come together and we're reminded there is a truth that endures and that all truth claims in our culture outside of this truth has a termination date. And we can be deeply encouraged by that. Well, we are in 2 Samuel 15. The original plan was to preach the entire chapter. And I was cutting out so much to make it within a two-hour frame that I realized that I may need to do it in two sermons. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. I only have one point this morning. There are originally two, so I cut the half, half of those points out for next week. So we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12 today, and then we will finish out this chapter in 13, from 13 to 37 next week. Generally, when you're preaching these narratives, one of the reasons that I preach such large narratives, if you, if you notice that when I'm in an epistle, it's much shorter passage, but it's one story. And so, you know, a, a story has a plot line, and it has a, a resolution, and 
And so it's hard to preach these narratives any shorter than they are, but there is a logical place here, so we're going to look at the first 12 verses today. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to give us ears to hear. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace that we have supremely and sufficiently in the Son of God and by the Spirit of God who applies the Lord Jesus' work to our minds, to our affections, and to our will so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, may we worship you today in spirit and in truth in how we steward this time. May we be found faithful stewards. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 1914, Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, traveled to Bosnia, which had been annexed with their country, Austria-Hungary. And on June the 28th, 106 years ago to this very day, this couple went to Sarajevo, which was the capital of Bosnia, and they went there to inspect the imperial troops stationed there. And as they drove towards their destination, they narrowly escaped death when Serbian terrorists threw a bomb towards their open-topped car. Unfortunately, later that day, their driver unwittingly drove them past a 19-year-old nationalist, a Serban nationalist named Gavrilo Princi, who shot and killed Ferdinand and his wife at point-blank range today, 106 years ago. Well, in response, Austria-Hungary, with Germany's support, declared war on Serbia. Within days, Germany declared war on Russia. Russia was Serbia's ally and invaded France via Belgium, which then caused Britain to declare war on Germany. With tensions running high with all of these European powers, this assassination 106 years ago today precipitated a rapid descent into what we know as World War I. And after that, other countries would follow into this war, including the United States. Overall, it is estimated that 9.7 million soldiers were killed in World War I and 10 million civilians. As grievous and as destructive as conflicts from without are, in this case, it precipitated World War I, conflicts from within are all the more horrific and the more common, whether it be a conflict from within a nation. We're seeing that today. Opposing ideologies, 
cultural Marxism seeking to raise its ugly head and, and increase its influence among many unwitting people. It's causing chaos and it's horrific. Or conflicts from within families and conflicts within churches. Well, chapters 15 to 20 is essentially one continuous story of conflict. Sadly and tragically, David and his conflict with his own flesh and blood son, Absalom's rebellion against David, in spite of what we saw at the end of chapter 14 last week. Remember verse 33. Says, so he came to the king, that is Absalom, and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. But it was reconciliation without repentance, it was reconciliation without true justice. And so it was superficial, and as we're gonna see immediately in chapter 15, it did not last. Keep in mind, Chapter 15 was not chapter 15 when this was written. The chapter divisions were written later. They were added later. So immediately says, the king kissed Absalom, verse 1. Here we see Absalom's coup. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, this very well may have been, and I tend to think it's so, the first chariot that has been seen in Jerusalem, at least since David and the Israelites inhabited Jerusalem. Chariots in the Old Testament represent self-sufficiency. It represents emphasis on human means and methods rather than a reliance on God. Remember Psalm 20, verse 7? Some trust in horses. Some trust in, in chariots. But we trust in the Lord our God. So you see, there's really two distinctions there. Those who trust in human means... And those who trust in the Lord are God. Indeed, the scriptures stretching from Exodus, Exodus 14 to be specific, all the way up to 2 Samuel, gives us a very negative portrayal of chariots. It depicts only the enemies of the Lord and the enemy of the Lord's people as having these chariots. So for instance, Exodus 14 and 15, we see the Egyptians with chariots. In Joshua chapter 11, we see the, the Canaanites with chariots. And we saw in 2 Samuel 8, the Aramaeans with chariots. And all of these countries used these chariots and horses unsuccessfully in their battle against Israel. And so, in verse 1 here, when Absalom gets himself a chariot... The writer is signaling something. It's again a wink-wink. Absalom here is linking his ambitions with symbols of hostility against Yahweh, the Lord. 
He's presenting here an image of a king that had always been attractive to worldly, carnally-minded Israelites. It's an alternative kind of greatness. It was behind their motivations from the very beginning to want a king like the nations. Well, notice in verse 2, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. Perhaps it was the gate of the castle or the, the gate of some place where David administrated things. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, and so they would come there to have their disputes heard. They had complaints. They wanted it heard by the king. Absalom would intercept them. Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. So he informs every complainant here that he believes that their claims are good and right. Now imagine a world where the, the judge here is telling everyone that they're right. Well, we're in that world right now. Um, but he also infers that David's administration of justice is so badly organized that there's no one that's been deputized by the king to hear their case. Maybe that's why the, the woman in chapter 14 was able to have a hearing before the king so quickly when, when she was sent by Joab. As is the way with many who seek to subvert things, which is common. Absalom here alleges that the current regime is deficient. All right? And he has a better plan. Notice verse 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Of course, the judge here is the king. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I would give him justice. So with this clever, subversive act, and we're going to see in verse 7, he did it for four years. For four years he did this at the gate. Absalom succeeded. In creating an atmosphere of discontent and mistrust with the people of God. Which in turn poisoned their goodwill towards David. Now we read this and the reason this is important is this has never gone away. This method and this pattern has never gone away. And notice, he does not attack David directly. His name's not mentioned. He's too advanced at subversion for that. But he does begin to take on 
a kind of underived authority. What do I mean by that? It hasn't been given to him by God. All right, notice in verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Of course, we know how sincere Absalom's kisses are. We saw that at the end of chapter 14. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. This tells us his motivation. This is a coup. But kings, David's kingship over the people of God, as flawed as David was, it had been granted to him by the Lord. And it wasn't to be usurped. And so Absalom's success, and clearly it was very successful, he won their hearts, the heart, is the causal core of our being. Everything we say with our mouths, everything we do with our hands, every place we go with our feet, everything we look at with our eyes, everything we hear with our ears, what's behind it? The heart. All right? The heart. And so his success not only indicted himself, it also indicted the people. He appealed to their carnal inclinations and they failed to guard their hearts and minds by the word of God. They should have said, well, that's not what scripture says. That's not what the promises say concerning David. But they failed to do that. They were taken in. And now Absalom is ready to make his move. He's very patient. We saw him wait two years to get vindication against his half-brother, Amnon. And so now he's ready to make his move. And he begins by creating this illusion that he's actually under the authority of the king, his father. Notice in verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Now, he was there for, what, three years? He says he, he made a vow during that time. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram. That's where he was. He was at his grandfather's house in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Of course, this wasn't about vows. This is a coup. In fact, his fake piety, where he uses the name of the Lord, uses the name of God, this is the last time, you can mark it here, that you will ever hear God's name on Absalom's lips. But parents are gullible. This parent is gullible. Maybe every parent is gullible. Once a kid hides behind the name of God, believing parents who want that so much for their children, they tend to take that, that bait hook, line, 
and sacred. And it appears to have been the case with David as well. Notice in verse 9, the king said to him, go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. Now, there were evident reasons to question Absalom's sincerity here. One, and most importantly, the law of God, Deuteronomy 23, 21, to be specific, required that such a vow be acted on quickly. Well, he's been back in Jerusalem for four years. So he certainly didn't act on that vow if there was ever a vow made. And yet, despite the implausibility of Absalom's story, David allows him to go. This will be the third time he's been deceived by a son. Remember, Amnon deceived David when he violated Tamar. Absalom had earlier deceived David when he had Amnon put to death. This is the third time. And unbeknownst to David here, this would be the last time he would ever lay eyes on Absalom. This is the last time he'll see his son. And ironically, his last words to Absalom here, go in shalom, go in peace. And it's ironic because this is the last thing Absalom wanted. Revolutionaries don't want peace. They want revolution. It's the last thing he wanted. Like the cultural Marxists of today. He wanted to bring in a new order and he would employ violence to do it. And this irony is increased when we consider that Absalom's name means father is peace. Father is peace. I have my thoughts on why he was named father is peace, Absalom. Because David recognized that he was the instrument. It would be through his line that the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to Adam and Eve would be accomplished that would usher in a cosmic shalom. And so you could say maybe a double entendre. The heavenly father is peace through the Davidic son, the Davidic king. But this son is the instrument of this peace. So Absalom's name means father is peace, but actually he is subverting his father. And subversion loves company. It loves company. Notice with me in verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel. Anything done in secret, generally, is not nobly motivated. Unless you are about to throw a surprise party for somebody. I can't think of a whole lot of other reasons. Maybe a proposal. But generally, something like this, it's not nobly motivated sent out messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king 
at Hebron. And so here we see he's already won their hearts and how he continues to win support. He sends out messengers throughout all the tribes. These are underground cells, if you will. They are intended, they are functioning to undermine from within. And you've heard me just mention before the, the, the notion of a fifth column. A fifth column is any group that seeks to undermine a larger group from within. It, it was coined by General Emilio Mola during the Spanish Civil War. When he invaded Madrid, he was asked how many columns of soldiers that he had. And he said five. Four at my back and a fifth column from within the walls. And this is how often churches split. And it's important to talk about this because unity is one of the great marks of the church because it is one of the defining accomplishments of the cross and the resurrection. All right? This is how churches split. One disenchanted member or one disenchanted group begins to work throughout the body. They begin to make calls. They begin to fill other members out and they begin to plant seeds of discontentment, seeds of division. And a fifth column develops within the church. But it doesn't generally happen, at least up front, as an act of war. It begins as concerns. Concerns. And that's how it began with Absalom. Concerns. He was concerned about the administrative justice of the king, of David. Concerns. But make no mistake. It might be called concerns. But in the dictionary, it's an act of war. Note the trumpets here. He's the use of trumpets. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say, Absalom is king at Hebron. In scripture, the trumpet's most common use is in war making. Trumpets were used as a summons to war. Jeremiah 4, verse 19. I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Trumpets were used to, to mark the commencement of an attack. Judges 3, verse 27. Trumpets were used to proclaim victory. 1 Samuel 13, verse 3. Trumpets were used to call public attention to other events like claims to kingship. We see that here. Chapter 15, verse 10. And, and even public renouncements. 
We'll see that in 2 Samuel verse 20, where Sheba will be introduced to Sheba, blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. So all of these could apply here with this trumpet being blown. And keep in mind, this is against the Lord's anointed. David was anointed, a Messiah, all right? That's the Hebrew. In 1 Samuel 16, and it said the spirit would remain with David, the anointing would remain with David all the days of his life. He is broken. He has blown it. He has sinned notoriously. And God has him still installed as king. So this was, to use more of a New Testament understanding, this was an act, an antichrist act on the part of Absalom. He's like a, an antichrist, as John warns in his epistles. Of course, Hebron, or Hebron here was, the, was very strategic. It was where Absalom had been born. It was also where David had initially been installed as king. But perhaps most importantly, God promised Abraham, all right, the land. Of course, Paul goes on and says in Romans 4, 13, he promised him the world. But the land was kind of a prototype. And the only plot of land that Abraham actually ever owned before he died was Hebron. And so I think Hebron was important to Absalom because it linked the promises that God made to Abraham to what he was seeking to accomplish. Of course, it's all a ruse. It's deceitful. But I believe that was his motivation. Notice in verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. So these men were not at this point in opposition to David. And why do I say that? Notice, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. They were not in opposition. They knew nothing. I believe this was very clever. They were invited guests. It appears that Absalom had handpicked these 200. He would have known them. And they came quite innocently as invited guests. They were likely known to be followers rather than leaders. Easily influenced. And I believe that's why behind the strategic choosing of these 200. They likely would have never joined Absalom, all right, from the beginning. But now once they're brought in, they join him and become a part of his, his coup. And they would assert their independence from the king. There's always people like that in the people of God. People that don't have an issue until seeds start getting planted and then they are brought in for no other reason than the fact that the seeds were planted. You see that here. Now notice in verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for a Hithophel. It's always a tongue teaser, uh, 
pull a hamstring trying to pronounce that. Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. Now, just to give you a, we're going to be reading more about Ahithophel. That's why I've got to be practicing this. Be praying for me. I do it in the mirror. I'm practicing this. Just to give you a little idea about Ahithophel, look over in chapter 16. Just turn the page, verse 23. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. It was, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel was a superstar, if you will, in Israel. He was known for his wise counsel. And now Absalom sins for him. And hence, notice the second part of verse 12. As we close out this narrative. And the conspiracy grew strong. Sad, horrific, fearful words. This is the kingdom of God. And the conspiracy from within grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, the narrator here calls it a conspiracy. Absalom was conspiring a treasonous plot against David, more importantly, against the kingdom of God. Because under the Davidic covenant, the kingdom of God was expressed through David, the Messiah. And it's interesting here that, that there's no mention made of David's thoughts or David's reaction to this. Oftentimes, kind of a blind love thinks no evil or sinister motives of those who are near and dear to them. And Absalom's conduct here is, is a reminder of the power of the tongue in stirring up strife. I remember Adrian Rogers preached a sermon on the meanest member in the church. He asked the question, who is the meanest member in the church? And everybody's thinking he's going to call out one of his deacons or <laughs> call out one of his staff. Who is the meanest member in the church? And then he read James 3. The tongue is a small member. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And many in Israel, and that's the language here, were swept off their feet by the tongue of this professional propagandist. Absalom and his subversive strategy. Having said all that, Absalom's rebellion is prospering in part because of David. Because of David's sin. Because of his recent leadership and his parental blunders. 
Additionally, David's sins have gained him enemies, including Ahithophel. Now, what's interesting about Ahithophel is that he was the father of a certain man named Eliam. We'll see that in chapter 23, verse 34. You say, why is that significant? Well, we learned already in chapter 11, verse 3, that Eliam was the father of a young lady whose name was Bathsheba. And so Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. From a natural perspective, you can see why Ahithophel had an issue with David. My goodness, every grandfather in here would want to bow up on him. But we also are reminded that we're never given an excuse for bitterness. And, and no matter how wicked David had acted in the past, even towards this man's own flesh and blood, bitterness was not a proper response. And bitterness took Ahithophel to a place that no one would have ever envisioned. He took him to the place where he would rebel against the king. He would rebel against the anointed one, the king. And in all actuality, I don't think Ahithophel was ever really with David. Certainly if David had committed that heinous act against our granddaughters, we'd have to do business with the person who did that. But there's a godly way of doing business with someone. A godly way of responding to someone. But crises also have a way of revealing where a person truly stands. And I think this crisis is going to expose, ultimately, that Ahithophel was never really with David all along. And as we look at this passage, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the original audience, it would be hard to believe, as I'm reading this as one of the original listeners, original readers, that the kingdom of God can stand. I mean, this is a worst-case scenario. How, how can the kingdom of God stand? The kingdom of God is going to crumble. It appears that there is no hope in the world. How can it survive? Kind of like when we look out at our culture and we see cultural Marxist movements abounding. And if you speak out against it, you get canceled. And it, it appears that there's no way the church can thrive in this. Just as the people of God would have said that in this day. But the promise. We are promise-driven people, right? We are promise-driven people. Write a book, The Promise-Driven Church. 
the promise given to the original audience to encourage them in their trials. When they turn on the news and all hope seems to be lost. It's the same promise that abides and remains today. What's interesting is before all of this chaos began, early March, late February, we looked at this promise just before COVID-19 pandemic. It's almost like the, the Lord was saying, this is going to be the promise you need to hold on to during these next few months. And so the last time we gathered together before COVID-19, I couldn't have planned that, was this promise that David was holding on to, that the original audience would have been holding on to, and it's the promise we must hold on to. Second Samuel 7, a true son's coming. Of course, we know better than they who this son is. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your Sarah, your offspring. When I say Sarah, that's the Hebrew word for offspring or seed. It's the same word used in Genesis 3.15. The seed, the Sarah, the offspring of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. In the head of the serpent's army. All right? So don't be fooled by the news. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will do it. The Lord, the Yahweh, will do this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Of course, the ensuing narrative is giving us just a glimpse of what kind of Messiah man can produce. Absalom is the kind of Messiah we can produce. But notice, it says God will establish this. Not some cunning group. And his will be a holy subversion. He won't engage in antichrist behavior. In fact, through his all-sufficient work that's going to include a cross where he takes God's wrath for humankind on those who believe would trust in him and he is raised from the grave and he has ascended to the right hand of God as we sang about this morning he is exalted through his all-sufficient work ironically the Antichrist and all of small a Antichrist dominion Daniel 7 26 their dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end Interestingly, in the New Testament, a trumpet. We saw Absalom, the Antichrist, blow a trumpet. But in the New Testament, a trumpet serves in particular as an eschatological image, an end-time image, if you will, to declare 
the coming of this son promised in 2 Samuel 7 in judgment to right the wrongs, to make the sad things come untrue, to deliver his people, not just spiritually, but physically and materially. Revelation, the book of the Revelation, depicts a series of seven trumpets, six of which announce various disasters and judgments coming upon the earth. So we should not be shocked when we see kind of things going on. In other words, the onset of spiritual battles. But these six don't matter. It's the seventh one that matters. There's a seventh trumpet. And in Revelation eleven fifteen, we read about this seventh trumpet, which signals the complete enthronement of this Davidic son. He has been enthroned, but in the sense of cosmic recognition. Where he defeats every enemy. Ultimately and consummately and perfectly. And the beginning of his total domination of the world. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world. By the way, the kingdom of the world is what you read about on the news. Now, there's some kingdoms that are less wicked than other kingdoms. But all the kingdoms would fall under this, except one, all right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, of His Messiah. And any attuned reader would would be reminded, that's the promise made to David, fulfilled. Why do I say that? And He shall reign forever and ever. The very promise of the Davidic covenant. The promise given to us by God just before all the chaos broke out. Isn't God good? Sweet providence. Incidentally, 101 years ago today, you know what happened? The Treaty of Versailles was signed. 106 years ago, the Archduke was assassinated. But 101 years ago today... June 28th, the Treaty of Versailles was signed, ending World War I five days, or five years rather, to the day when Ferdinand and Sophie were so brutally assassinated. Although the the armistice that was signed on November the 11th, all right, 1918, ended the actual fighting of World War I, it took six months of allied negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference to conclude the peace treaty. For us, the treaty has already been signed. Signed by the blood 
of the cross of the Davidic son. One who took the judgment for people like Absalom. So naturally subversive. So naturally cunning. So naturally anti-Christ in his behavior. People like me. People like you. He took it. And by that blood, that treaty was signed and inaugurated. And it was validated through his bodily, in time and space, resurrection from the grave. But unlike Versailles, the major battles follow the treaty. That's what's interesting. Hence Paul's treatise on spiritual warfare. But we fight from victory because the treaty's already been signed. We fight from victory. And we fight for unity because we see how devastating division is. We fight for unity because that was a provision of the treaty. Jesus Christ came and accomplished reconciliation. Ergo, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because that's what's been accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize from texts like this one that division is an anti-kingdom travesty. Let's pray. Father of mercy, thank you that the battle has been won and now we are just engaged in a mop-up operation. We exist as the people of God between D-Day and V-Day. V-Day being the day our Christ returns and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, our Christ. And he shall reign forever and evermore. And that's why we began this morning singing. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. Lord, may that truth, may that promise be the song of our hearts this week. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in this king, we pray that they would transfer their allegiances from Absalom-like rulers this world is full of those to the true king. That they would look to Jesus as their hope, that they would look to Jesus as their Savior and Lord and Master. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to close today with a benediction from Romans 15. And if it's on the board, is it on the board? I would ask you to recite this passage with me. It's a beautiful passage and it's a beautiful prayer for our people. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace. You're dismissed.